chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12. We're going to look through this whole portion of Scripture. We're going to start reading it and uh, then we'll work our way through it as we talk about the constant faithfulness of God. It says in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. When Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the doors were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly! And his chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the, to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning them to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. 
and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word. We do pray that you would fill us with encouragement and strength as we see your hand at work, as we understand what you do in our lives and may it encourage us in our walk and pursuit of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever done anything that when you look back on it later, you just shake your head in disbelief and you laugh, say, I can't believe I did that. I was, I was going to give some exa- an example of my own life, but I couldn't pick one because the list was far too long. You look back and think, just, you know, those head smack moments, you think, I can't believe that's what I did, how I reacted then. Uh, I think that's how these believers here in Jerusalem look back on this event. They look back on this and they just shake their heads and go, can you believe we did that? Can you, can you believe what we did? Poor Rhoda. We, we said she was crazy. And just I, I think the believers genuinely look back on this event with humor. And the whole passage is funny. This is, this is one of the, if you will, the comedies of, of Scripture. Here God is steadily working his, his, uh, his work in control of everything. And while God is doing that, there's people just bumbling around everywhere like clowns um, trying to, to get their things done. And God just steadily does his work. I've always enjoyed this passage, even for us from, a, from a kid. There's, there's so much to learn here and, and so much for us to grow with and, and from. And also, it ends with a pretty disgusting end. And you know, when you're a kid, that's always entertaining when there's you know, something disgusting in there. But in the comedy of all of this, there is great encouragement. There is a, a real strength. Because it, it shows us so many things. But along the way through this, it also shows us just a little bit about how God is enabling the church in Jerusalem to endure difficulty. And the church as a whole. Uh, It shows us a little bit about how God prepares the church in Jerusalem to continue and to grow after the apostles. So what's going to happen with the church and with Christianity when the apostles go away? We can see God is already preparing that and already working in that way. No matter what goes on in this world, no matter what happens, where it's at or what happens, God is in control. And while some try to defeat God and resist God and even deny God, he faithfully pursues his purpose. And while his people bounce back and forth between faith and confusion, God faithfully pursues his purpose. We're going to look at this passage this morning around what I think are three key moments in here, uh, the beginning in verse one, where we see persecution, then in verse five, where we see the prayer of God's people, and then verse 24, the last verse we read, the purpose of God. And so we're going to look through these and, and use those three, I think, key moments to make our way through what God is doing here. So firstly, as we begin, the persecution of God's people. It begins here in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. There is a persistent attack on God. 
Now, in terms of the church at Jerusalem, although the, the persecution has been less intense on them in the, in the last uh, period or so, since Saul stopped persecuting and stopped chasing, it seems that the, while the persecution didn't disappear, it certainly wasn't as intense <clears throat> excuse me, as, as it was with, with Paul. But although that persecution isn't so intense, under the surface, tension is brewing. Things are moving and bubbling along. Now, the events that take place here in chapter 12 probably fit somewhere between uh, chapter 11, verse 26, so uh, the events of Cornelius, and probably before the famine and Saul and Barnabas' trip back to Jerusalem. So probably somewhere in that thing. So after Cornelius, after the Gentiles, but before the famine, somewhere probably in there. But what happens is because you know, what we've seen, haven't we, is we've seen, we've seen the church at Jerusalem start as predominantly Jewish. Then as time has progressed through people like Philip and others, the gospel has started to reach out to the Samaritans. So we're already starting to make the Jews a little bit uncomfortable with the Christians. But then Peter goes and, and the gospel becomes uh, free amongst the Gentiles. And so the church is now seen as, as having a, a relationship between not just Samaritans, but now Gentiles. So the relationship between the Christians in Jerusalem and the Jews in Jerusalem is coming to a boiling point. It's coming to a point where the Jews can no longer just accept them and say, well, look, they're just, if we just leave them, because now they're associating and they're bringing in these Samaritans and these Gentiles. This is all brewing underneath. Satan may seem quiet at times, but he never gives up. Satan doesn't give up. He's working quietly in the background. And while it may not be uh, overtly seen in the quiet behind the grounds tensions are brewing trouble is brewing we see it in our own society today we've had several decades in the western world where there has been relative acceptance of Christianity and of Christian morality that time is quickly passing the acceptance of Christianity and morality as, as being a part of society, a valid part of society, is disappearing. Satan doesn't give up. And with this persistent attack on God, as Satan doesn't give up, the saints of God suffer. The saints suffer while the attack is, is for God. You know, Satan's real foe is God. He is rebelling against God, but the focus of his attacks are on the people of God. As we come here, it talks about Herod. Herod, you know, the Jews hadn't been fans of the Herods. Uh, they had been antagonistic and, and troublesome. But this Herod in chapter 12, this is Herod Antipas I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, we know Herod the Great because Herod the Great is the one who was uh, ruling when Jesus was born and who tried to have all the, kill, the children under two killed. Right? So this is the grandson of that man. He had been working very hard to appease the Jews and to kind of bring in some uh, goodwill 
between his family and his rule and the Jews. And so he attacks the Jerusalem church. And he is, he is more brazen. The attacks and the persecution this time are more brazen than before. I mean, when we saw Saul, Saul was chasing the, the people and the churches and, and, and uh, the, the Christians around. Herod, Herod goes straight to the top. Herod doesn't muck around. Herod goes and he starts with the apostles. And he comes to get James. James, the brother of John. James is the first of the apostles to be martyred. He is the only of the apostles who have his death recorded in the New Testament. Just as a side note, it's interesting to note that there is no attempt ever made to replace James. So once the apostles die, there is no replacing them. Judas was replaced by Matthias. And we're told he was replaced because of his apostasy. After that, there is no replacing of the apostle. So if someone tells you they uh, are an apostle, uh, don't believe them. They are not an apostle. They're gone. They were the 12. It seems, though, doesn't it, in this circumstance, that we come to a similar place in the early church. It always seems to be in a precarious situation, a place where if we go this way, the potential for destruction of the church is high. But if we go this way, then God can do something. And they're always perched on this place of here we are, the wrong move could end it all. And that's where we're at again. Here we are at a place where Herod is trying to please the Jews and he's making a rampage. Perhaps he thinks that if we get rid of the leaders, if we get rid of the apostles, then the whole thing will just fall away. They'll have no leadership. It'll just fall apart. Yet God continues to keep his promise. The promise that Jesus made that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now, while the sinners are suffering, or while the saints are suffering, I should say, the sinners are rejoicing. Herod kills James, the apostle, the brother of John. Seeing that it made the Jews happy, it says in verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. The Jews rejoiced at the murder of James. You know, the heart of sin is rebellion against God. That's what's at the heart of our sin. It brings joy to sinners when it looks like God is a loser. Right? When it looks like what, what God is doing is falling apart. When it looks like you know, when God says he protects his people and then his people start dying or start finding themselves in trouble or difficulty or stress, people go, see, where is your God now? All that time you lived for God, all that time you spent in church, all that time you spent reading the Bible and trusting God, where is he now in your difficulty? And they rejoice when God's people suffer. In our day, outright hostility to God and to God's people is growing. We have rules in Australia, laws in Australia now, that prevent Christians praying for people. We have in our own state, in just the last month, the, the, the government denied a Christian organization use of their buildings. They stood against euthanasia and the LGBTQI plus agenda and things like that. Because of that, they denied them use. And as 
as you read the, the comments of what took place here and the, the commentary on these things, many people applaud these decisions. Christians don't have a right to voice the truth. While there is persistent attack on God, we also see the persistent faithfulness of God. Verse 3, of course, says, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter is imprisoned to the first step. Herod sees an advantage and he takes it. Right, It's Passover time. Uh, they have a, a week or thereabouts of feasts. So the place is filled with Jews. If ever there was a time when Herod could make a real inroad into seeing that the Jews pleased with him and, and give him great uh, pleasure was now because it's filled with Jews. So he has Peter. says, while everyone is here, I'm going to kill him. He waits until after the feast so that he's not interrupting the feast because he still gets all that advantage while the city is filled. He's going to kill Peter and take full advantage of it. So he throws Peter in prison during the Passover celebrations. And this is where the comedy starts. Four guards are given to protect or to hold one man. So it says that to a squad of four, so there are four soldiers here given to him. This is maximum security prison. Perhaps they remember years ago when Peter and John were in prison and they just walked out. So maybe because they remember that or the great fierceness of the, what they see as the opposition, they decide, well, we're going to make sure that he doesn't escape this time. As, as if, you know, if a man just walks out of prison, you think, well, he miraculously walked out of prison, so the answer is more guards. So they have four guards. He's chained to two of them, and two of them stand out in front of the cell door. Peter miraculously escapes prison, and he has done before, and so maybe they think this will, will help. So while Herod and the Jews and the believers are scrambling about through all of this and through everything that goes on, I see in this passage a straight line which runs through it. A straight line which runs through this passage and while everyone else is wandering about in like a, a big twisted pile of, of thread, there is one straight line which runs right through this, which runs right straight through history. It begins in verse 1 with the persecution. The persecution of God's people. And then it runs from verse 1 where we see the persecution and it runs a straight line to verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Peter is imprisoned, the persecution. God travels his straight line through history and he intervenes. God intervenes. His people pray in verse 5. Peter recognizes as he sits out on that cold street in the middle of the night, he recognizes that despite what anyone tried to do, God did exactly as he planned. 
despite all the efforts of the Romans and the Jews, despite all of that, God did exactly what he intended. No power of hell nor scheme of man can ever alter God's plan. This straight line runs from verse 1 with the persecution to verse 11 with the, the intervention of God to verse 24, the last verse, where it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Peter is in prison. God intervenes. Disciples increase. Straight line of the work of God, straight through. Trouble, intervention, purpose. God is working his way through. This is pretty much where we're going through here. So I've, I've given you the, essentially the, the outline or what we're going to see through the rest of this morning. God accomplishes his purpose. His kingdom advances. And instead of crushing the church and crushing God's work, it grows stronger, it grows mightier, it grows greater. From the persecution of God's people, we see the prayers of God's people. While Peter is in prison, it says in verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant or earnest or fervent prayer. Pray fervently. You know, as far as Luke is concerned, we see it through his gospel, but we really see it through the book of Acts. As far as Luke is concerned, prayer is the nature of the believer. For everything that, that Luke knows, churches pray. It's natural to him. It's, it's what he sees. It's what happens. One of the Puritan writers, and I, I can't remember who it was. I couldn't find the, the, re, the, the exact quote. But one of the Puritan writers once said, Prayer is to the Christian like crying is to the baby. It's just natural. We're not taught it. We don't learn it. it. It's who we are. It is part of what God does within us. And so we are to pray fervently, earnestly, fervently. That word constant or earnest, what does it mean? Perhaps the best example of what it means to pray constantly or to pray fervently, it's the same word is used in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying in the garden. He gets up and he goes and he finds the disciples asleep. Then he goes back to pray and it says, and he prayed more fervently. And then he sweated, as it were, drops of blood. This, this type of prayer, fervent or constant or earnest prayer, is hard-working prayer. This is the prayer that James describes in James chapter 5 and verse 16. The effective working prayer of a righteous man avails much. That is, it's hard work. It's effort. The early church knew how to pray. They'd seen amazing things happen from their prayer. They'd probably been gathered for days here praying. We don't know what they were praying for. It doesn't tell us how they prayed or what they were praying about. It doesn't seem like they were praying for this miracle. Perhaps they were praying for deliverance. Maybe they were praying that Herod would change his mind or the decision would be reversed or something would happen which would cause him to be released. 
Perhaps they were praying for boldness for Peter or strength to face the trial. Perhaps they were praying for the church, that the church would know what to do, that the church could endure the trial of losing both James and Peter so closely together. Maybe they were praying for comfort and peace for Peter or that God's will would be done. But they were praying. What is clear is that our generation of Christians don't pray like they did. In survey after survey after survey of Christians, the majority of Christians openly admit that their prayer life is non-existent. Prayer is like breath. Without it, we die. Churches pray, and God's people rest. While the church is at home that night praying, They have been praying and they're praying earnestly and they're working hard in their prayers. It says in verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. That is Peter. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off. Like I said before, it's probably this verse and this section which Wesley had in mind when he wrote that verse in And Can It Be? Dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, and I was free. I rose, went forth, and followed. Wesley was right when he gives this a sense of awe and wonder. We sing that song, and we, we can see it, and there's this sense of just, just absolute wonder as we sing those words of what God does. But as I read this, I can't help but laugh. This verse reminds me of trying to wake up a nair. Uh, in the morning, and uh, and Anaya, we can you know, shake and poke and prod, and Anaya, Anaya, wake up! And we poke some more and pull the blankets off, and you know, about 45 minutes later, not that long, but it's hard work waking her up in the morning. Peter is in a cold prison on a hard floor chained to two soldiers on either side, expecting the next day to die, and he is fast asleep. He is so fast asleep, the angel has to hit him. Wake up, Pete! Wake up! And through the whole thing, Peter doesn't really wake up until he's sitting out on the street in the cold. He's walking around in a, in a daze, half asleep. That is how deeply he is sleeping. The apostles could sleep anywhere, anytime. Why? They trusted God. They trusted God. There is no doubt that the intercession of the saints and the church helped. But think about the things that keep you awake at night. Peter is in prison expecting tomorrow to die, and he is fast asleep. What keeps us awake at night? What does that say about our faith? Now, sleepless nights don't always mean lack of faith. The church is awake that night, praying in faith. Paul says that he was often awake through the night, praying for the concerns 
of the people of the churches he met. So it doesn't always mean lack of faith. But the truth is we often lose rest, not just sleep, but we often lose rest because our faith is weak. We stay awake all night, tossing and turning, worrying, fretting. When you pray for people in difficulty, pray for rest, pray for sleep. God's people rest. And when God's people pray, prayers get answered. We see it as we come through. Peter is awoken in verse 7, verse 8 says, Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So he did, and he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he's fully asleep. The angel's waking him up, shaking him. He says, come on, man, get dressed. Put your shoes on, get your coat on. Let's, let's go. So he went and out and followed him, verse 9. And he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord and they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him and when Peter had come to himself he said now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people you know some people want to believe that he got out because the the guards were bribed Peter is sitting out in the cold night there on the thing and he says God got me out. Despite what everyone else expected, God brought me out of prison. He's still half asleep. He has to be reminded to, to get dressed and to put his shoes on. But the chains are released. They just fall off. He walks past all of the guards through the prison, comes to the gate that goes out onto the street. The gate, before they had automatic opening doors, the doors of the gates just open. Peter walks out into the street. The angel leads him around the corner, down the street, about a block away, and leaves him there. Peter is walking along, and he's still in such a daze, he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks this is a vision of God. And he, he goes, Herod can't stop God. The soldiers can't stop God. The prison doors can't stop God. If God wants Peter free, that's what's going to happen. Peter is going to be free. It doesn't matter what trials or what oppositions come in your way. They can't stop God doing his work. Now that doesn't mean, when I say that, that doesn't mean that God always delivers like he's going to remove us from that and some miraculous thing is going to happen and whatever the difficulty is, the problem is, just goes away. It doesn't mean that's always how it answers. How does our text begin? James died. James died with a sword, but Peter walks out of the prison. But in both circumstances, nothing stops God's work. God's power is often surprising and he often answers our prayers in ways that blow our minds in ways that are completely unexpected and while god is powerful 
And we see the power of God here as he, he releases Peter from prison. While God is powerful, God's people are weak. Peter comes out and he comes to himself. He wakes up and, and verse 12 tells us he goes to uh, Mary's house, who is the mother of John Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas. This will come a little bit more together in the coming chapters. But while God's enemies are too weak to stop him, sometimes his believers' faith is weak and wavers. Verse 7 says, Now behold, an angel of the Lord. This is not the angel of the Lord, so it's not Jesus himself who comes. But he doesn't just say, now an angel. But he particularly brings out the fact that it is an angel of the Lord. Why? Because the emphasis is he sent this angel by his own direction. God chose to do this. God determined this way of action. God worked this process. I am sure that, you know, as the church looked back on this, as I've said, and, and they think about what happened, I am sure they laughed about this later. Rhoda probably reminded them often, you know, don't, don't call me crazy. You remember when you did that last time and I was right? It was Peter at the door, wasn't it? I'm, I'm sure in good humor they lived this out later. Because here they were, gathered together, a great group of them gathered together in the house, praying for Peter. God answers their prayer, and they don't believe it. Dear God, help Peter. Peter comes to the door. No, it's not. It's got to be something else. Verse 16 says they were astonished when they saw him. Can you imagine the looks on their faces? Imagine, you know, and then in verse 17, Peter has to remind him, you know, he's been out on the, on the thing, banging on the, the door, and has to remind him, stop, you're going to wake up all the neighbors. Quiet. The whole thing is just, just it's, it's funny. You know, sometimes we pray with good intentions. We pray with, with full hearts, and yet we still linger in doubt. At the back of our minds, we wonder, will God really give anything according to his will? Does it include this? What might it be? God exceeded their faith, and he grew it here. Can I pray for God to heal my dad's cancer? Yes, I can. And I do, but sometimes I doubt he will. If God doesn't heal my dad's cancer, does that mean a miracle has not taken place? No, it doesn't. The prayer of faith isn't believing that God will miraculously do what I want him to do. The prayer of faith believes that God will do what needs to be done and that lives will be changed. Sometimes James dies, and other times Peter escapes. But every time God works miracles, and every time God changes lives and strengthens faith. We are not called to pray for our desired outcome, but to pray for his desired outcome.
That doesn't mean that if you don't pray big enough, God won't answer in a big way. You know, it doesn't say they were praying for his release or his miraculous release. You know, if, if I'm not there praying, say, God, God, you, you have to release this, that God won't do it because I didn't pray that big. Because I didn't pray strong enough or hard enough or big enough. God regularly exceeds our expectations. So our line goes, we start at the beginning in verse 1, where we see the persecution of God's people and god runs his straight line to intervene and while that's happening we're running about trying to stop him trying to figure out what he's doing and god intervenes it brings us to the other end of this line where the purpose of god is accomplished the purpose of god is accomplished give god glory peter tells him tell james now that james is uh uh, James, Jesus' brother, who is you know, part of how we see the transition happening here. You know, because James the apostle is dead. Some of the apostles already have scattered through the world. Peter is clearly the leader of the church. He is in prison, and now he's going to have to flee. So what happens to the church? James, Jesus' brother, seems to be in a place of authority and leadership this is how god is moving for the continuity of his work through james but then it comes to verse 20 they can't find him herod kills the soldiers who were there and he apparently needs a holiday from all of this so he goes to caesarea which for the romans caesarea was essentially the roman capital of palestine that's what they saw so he's there in his palace there. It says in verse 20, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Clearly, the story here is give God glory. Give God glory. We love praise for, for his safety. Peter flees, and for the safety of the church. He can't stay in Jerusalem. He needs to get outside of the domain of, of Herod. For a long time, the Roman Catholic Church taught that Peter ran from here and he went to Rome. Don't think they uh, any longer follow that because it just can't happen. He didn't go to Rome here. What's more likely is he probably ended up somewhere like Antioch in Syria. So up with the new church of Gentiles in, in Antioch, possibly. But Herod apparently needs a, a, a holiday. He goes to Caesarea. Now, the, the dispute that arises here between Tyre and Sidon, we don't know how it began. The details of how it happened, we don't, we don't know what happened. But after some bribery, the sanctions that Herod has put on these, uh, this area uh, is, is lifted. They relied on Palestine for their food, or a significant portion of their food. So, probably coinciding, you know, after the peace uh, deal has been uh, brokered, coinciding with probably a, a ceremony or a, a celebration honoring um, Caesar. 
they honour Herod. And they, they set up a great thing to honour Herod. The church historian Josephus also records this account. And between Josephus and Luke, we have a pretty good idea of what took place on this day. Herod has clothed himself in his most magnificent garments. They are garments which he had made woven with silver. So when he walked out into the, the area and he sat on his throne in the early morning, the sun of the early morning gleams off of his silver woven clothes, giving him this radiance before the people. So he looks like this magnificent otherworldly angel, perhaps, or God. The people all gathered around him. They're there to flatter him. And as they see him glowing and glistening in the sun, they cry out to him, calling him a god. Herod enjoys this, and he encourages it. So the people cry out greater things about who he is and how he speaks. Don't we all love praise? Herod just drank in that praise, but don't we all love praise? It's that desire that uh, uh, at the heart of our problem with God, we love praise. We're not prepared to give God the glory that we want. Don't mock God. Josephus, just like Luke, attributes the death of Herod to divine judgment. Why did Herod die? Verse 23 tells us he tried to steal God's glory, to usurp God's authority. Which is funny, isn't it? Because Herod couldn't keep Peter in prison. And yet he wants to be adored as a god. We can't keep our own lives in order. And yet we want to tell God how he should act. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he shall also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Herod's end is horrible. It is disgusting and it is painful. Josephus tells us that Herod was in absolute agony for five days before he finally died. Doctor suggest that what probably happened is he died of a tapeworm cyst which ruptured inside. I won't go into the details. It's disgusting. You can look it up yourself if you want to later. His end isn't funny, but it is laughable. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed and saying, let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. As people stand against God and say, we're going to break away from what he, he says and we're not going to be bound by his laws and bound by his rules. We're going to do what we want and we're going to take the praise for what we have created. And God sits in the heavens and he says, you're joking, right? You have got to be kidding. And he laughs at our petty attempts to take his glory. God will not be mocked. 
If you haven't believed Christ as Savior, you may not be calling yourself God, but you are certainly looking and living as if you're God. Nothing good can come of that. But God will advance his kingdom. The last verse of our text says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. You can't stop God. Herod thought he could fight God. Satan thinks that he can fight God and win. You cannot fight God and win. God's purpose will continue. He will do what he intends to do. The gospel will multiply. What is God's intention? What is his purpose? What is he working toward? The spread of the gospel through the earth for his glory. He is calling out a people for himself and he is saving them from destruction. Nothing that anyone does, nothing that anyone can do can hinder God's work. Right? We watch this episode. People are scrambling everywhere, trying to stop God's work. Christians are wandering all over, trying to figure out what we do. And God just does his thing. He keeps going. And he fulfills his purpose. Nothing anyone does can hinder God's work. Every attempt to destroy it just multiplies it. You know, in a world which seems to be a mess twisted in every direction God stays his course in a world where we his people stumble lack faith and get confused God stays his course not because he's blindly stubborn but because he's in control he has a purpose in this world and it will be accomplished. There is no question of it. He intends to save people from sin. To rescue us from self-worship. And to free us to worship him. You know, the Christian life is a life lived to serve and worship God, not self. No matter how good I think I am. No matter how strong I imagine myself to be, I have no control over this world. God does. In every part. Will you let go of your desire to be in control and submit to the one who does have control? Believe. Perhaps you need to believe that you are a sinner and that Jesus can forgive. And believer... Find confidence in God's constant faithfulness. Constant faithfulness. Though at times it seems like evil will prevail, evil will overpower, God is in control. He will intervene and he will fulfill his purpose. Don't worry if you're not praying the right words or if you're not feeling like you're praying bold enough. Seek God, pursue God, and pray. God will answer your prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that in the midst of this comedy of errors and, and pride, we see your consistent faithfulness. The world and even believers get ourselves all twisted up. But you faithfully, consistently pursue your purpose. Help us, dear God, to be strong in that. To pray to pursue your will. To find confidence in the truth that you will always do what is right. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.